Well, hello and welcome to The Mariner with me, Chris Stanmore Major. Now, in the last video I put out on YouTube about 10 days ago, uh, some good questions turned up. It's been a bit of a funny one, that, because it definitely doesn't go with what I know works on YouTube, which is quite short stuff showing a varied series of backgrounds and like zoom in, zoom out shots and five second attention span stuff. Um, it's 57 minutes of really granular, detailed stuff. Uh, about winches but if you're listening to this podcast i'm thinking <laughs> you might be like oh that sounds good in which case look we've both got a mental illness we need to have a look at but also yeah get over there and have a look and do me a favor click subscribe and like it really helps and what it what always happens with this stuff with media creation is you put it out there, but then you're looking for the video to gain what they call traction. So just like a car getting traction in the snow, if more people are clicking like, putting comments, interacting with each other, sharing, it's got traction, then the algorithm knows that it's something that people are interested in and it will try and show it to other people with the same interest groups. Now, from my point of view, on the opposite side of that, you can start giving the algorithm what it wants so that you get more success. It's easily possible to have a three minute video, which everyone loves clicks on and, um, you know, you get hundreds of thousands of views from it. God, I wish. But I think also there's still a, there's an area, an, a reserved area for like how you learn important things, which I think should be more than like TikTok shorts, you know? So am I even saying that right? God, am I showing my age? Am I mixing YouTube shorts and TikTok? Whatever, look, there's a lot of good information in it. Go and have a look. And uh, if I see that it's getting traction and people are enjoying it, of course, then we'll um, get into more of them. We've already actually filmed five of them, so it should be good. But on it came questions. Okay, so I'll kind of go down the list of questions that I've got here keyed up. Um, these ones I've already responded to or sort of seen online. Um, if you have questions, of course, you can write to csmthemariner at gmail.com. I'll try and uh, give you some uh, feedback on your questions and uh, give you whatever knowledge I have. But uh, these ones on YouTube, very easy for me to receive. And um, I will just write to this person who is called Bogdan Stan, CU6501. <laughs> like, sounds like a an android from an Asimov uh, book. Um, I always write to him on YouTube and say, hey, go and listen to the podcast, right? And then uh, maybe I'll get an extra person to listen to the podcast. Oh, if I can just get Bogdan Stan to start listening to the Mariner's Library, my life will be complete. Um, okay, but look, he says, great video. Uh, thank you. What could you say about overriding turns? Why they happen? Some say because the winch is overcharged with turns. <clears throat> well, there we go. Cool. <laughs> I'm excited to answer this kind of question. This is exactly where my interest area with sailing is. Is like, this is physics is going to physics, right? So if we just know that bit, then uh, life will be easy. Look, uh, overriding turns. Can I call you Stan? I don't know if your first name is Bogdan or Stan, but I'm going to go with Stan. Um, thank you very much for watching the video and liking and sharing and all that stuff. Wonderful. Uh, overriding turns are very simple to understand. And the uh, read the manual, the RTFM on your winches that no one ever read. No one even knows it comes with them. And uh, it's kind of like learning to run, right? Who learns to run? You just learn when you're little and then that's it. But if you read books like Born to Run or you do any sort of study for any kind of time, if you've got issues with your feet and suddenly become a foot expert, you start to realize that there is a way to run. There's lots of ways of not running. Heel striking all the time is not very good on your body. There are ways of putting your weight forward so that it's on your toes. And you go, wow, this really basic thing that I thought I knew how to do actually 
there's theory behind it and there are other ways of doing it which maybe make other kinds of sense winches are definitely in that package which is why we started doing the seamanship training videos with winches because um, they're right there it's the thing that you're probably going to be doing first if you go on a boat new the, the definitely the skipper owner whoever it is the first thing they're going to want to get rid of is the labor right so you're it so you need to know how a winch works um, overriding turns for those who don't know um, is when you pull in a line and the line coming into the winch at the bottom of the winch starts to make its way up on top of the wraps which are above it in the spiral of rope going up the winch drum does that make sense so suddenly the bottom turn ends up on top of one or two or more of the turns above it now you know if that's a kind of lightweight situation if you're on some 30 footer or something it is possible perhaps to just manhandle it all back into position the problem is what if it's in a situation where you can't get it undone what if it's the wraps at the top of the main halyard where there's no way to get any slack in the system you just ground it in and the mains at the top what if it's on a uh, jib sheet or something and again you've grounded in oh that jib it looks like the fastest jib that's ever been created by man and then you look down at the winch and it's going to be that shape for quite a long time that jib because the bottom turn has ridden up onto the uh, the turns above it so the question that stan puts is is it because there's too many turns on the winch the answer is kind of okay Firstly, let's talk about um, the, the apron at the bottom of the winch, that kind of skirt thing that's at the bottom. The lowest angle that a rope can enter a winch is actually beyond the angle of the apron at the bottom because even if the rope's somehow coming from much lower down, like some fair lead or something, it'll come up, it'll meet the edge of the skirt on the on the winch drum, and then it'll make its way into the plane of the of the skirt and then up onto the drum so no real problem right but there's another angle to consider which is that 15 degree angle on the rope coming in if it's if it's too low the skirt will sort it out if it's higher than 15 degrees from the horizontal there is a good chance particularly on older ropes which have got a much more kind of um friction positive uh, sheathing on them or the material of the rope itself is inherently more grippy if you've got some like kevlar no that's a ridiculous example chris who's going to have that okay well let's try that let's try it to begin with look if you have kevlar race ropes then they're going to have they're very very grippy because they're meant to grip on winches taking huge loads so if the rope rubs against itself it's very grippy and it'll sort of set off in whatever is the, the direction you don't want it to go into an overriding turn if you've got technora mixed into the jacket of your uh, sheet maybe some particular like spinnaker sheet or something a, a little bit more racy boat a little bit more expensive bit of rope being used again that technora increases the friction materials the friction coefficients of the sheath of the rope so it grips onto the winch but where you get that benefit obviously you get a corresponding negative and that is that if the rope even starts to look like it's going to go into an override it will grip and become an override so rope material is very very important making sure that the rope is the right size for the winch if you've got an oversized line going onto a smaller size winch then you'll often get a situation where basically it will by its weight and by the small diameter of the winch slump down onto the skirt and then the large um, loose circles which are at the bottom of the winch are very apt to climb their way up the apron up the skirt closer to the drum when load is applied and they'll cross over themselves so the correct size rope be aware of the material it's made from and then the major thing with overrides is the entry angle of the rope from wherever it's 
coming to the winch from okay so your lead is your lead fare so the angle of the fare lead now in the manual for the winches which say no one ever looks at it says it cannot be above 15 degrees above the horizontal 15 degrees above horizontal is nothing right that's nothing at all so what it means is that winches are very very um sensitive to the angle of the incoming line which is why we have those turning blocks on the side decks of a boat if you just were going to have a line come down from a jib go through a turning block which by its nature has to be quite fluid in its in its joint to the boat as a piece of deck hardware it'll jiggle around and jump up and down when that jib is flogging against it and it will shake the line that's coming into the winch and if it shakes the line coming into the winch and it shakes the entry angle to the winch much above 15 degrees it can go into an override it won't always go into an override as we said maybe the material of the rope will um, be a little bit more um, forgiving but if it's a slightly older line or if it's something more actually technical it'll just flick into an override now do you notice at that position at that time if you don't notice at that moment then what happens you keep grinding keep grinding and as we all know you end up with the the piece of the rope the incoming piece of rope which is now under a lot of tension because you have put some you know work into that winch is now on top of the wraps that are the friction base of the of the rope winch interaction right so suddenly you can't release it you've got a break uh, on the winch you've got like a a kind of drum break happening there right so the issue that we have to then get past is how do we unload the line which is creating the problem you've got how many options here if you're on a big super yacht right something over 100 feet uh, you don't let go the winches on big headsails or, or spinnakers indeed on big big super yachts right 100 foot 150 foot you back down the winches you back down the winch with a button that just runs it back the opposite way normally at a reduced speed like a let off speed to get the pressure off the line because otherwise it's uh it could explosively kind of decompress on you and um with all the will in the world you know just mash whoever's on the other side of the winch so you ease them off so if you have an override and you happen to be <laughs> out on your 120 footer just press the other button super easy right a little bit more tricky of course if it's uh, a normal winch that the rest of us have so how do you deal with it well let's come like down from what the pros are using and then we should end up at like some version of it that we can use but we know what we're trying to do the worst thing is when we're not really sure what it is we're trying to achieve so it's very difficult to make a ad hoc tool to achieve it right so what we have on the boat which um, came off of it came off of one of the Whitbread 60s it's a jammer not a clutch a jammer which uh, is made by Spinlock. It's one of their kind of original product lines. Um, we've been through this before, but basically on the boats I have between like uh, 13 mil and 17 mil lines go into this like quite solid unit on the deck, which has just a pull out little handle at the top that only moves about an inch and a half. There's quite an angular shape to it. And what's happening inside is that as the rope passes through from the back to the front, when the little handle at the top is in the in position, a wedge is applied in a wedge shaped cavity to simplify it and the rope catches on it and everything is compressed together as the rope tries to draw that smaller wedge into the overall wedge shaped uh, capacity inside there right I hope that kind of makes sense so it's a wedging tool a jammer ends up giving as much um, 
uh, uh, surface area to the job of friction as anything you're ever going to get on a boat other than a winch. A winch will add like a meter, you know, a normal size winch will add like a meter of friction area from the rope connecting with the winch. If you have a clutch, they only have a very small contact patch, like half an inch. It's very easy to damage lines with them, particularly if you smoke the jammers regularly. Uh, sorry, the smoke the clutches regularly. A jammer cannot be released under pressure. What you have to do is draw it on and then uh, it release the handle and then when the handle is out it pulls the little wedge out of the wedge shaped cavity inside that releases the rope and it's free to go but it's um, a piece of equipment which uses friction to bear down and hold the lines and the ones that we have will pull 17,000 pounds so suddenly what we have is like an iron grasp on the rope not a clutch which is very small contact patch not another winch because how could you get another winch in there but we've got this other piece of equipment this jammer from spinlock and um the great thing about it is that the way the mechanism works when i said it was a wedge inside it's not one it's kind of two and they clamp down from either side of the rope above and below with springs and what you can do is cut the side off a jammer and then have little wing nuts that hold it on when you need it but once that side is released you can pass the rope into the jammer from the side so Ignoring all the previ previous uh, description there, imagine one of your clutches, you can get the rope in from the side of it. That'd be useful, right? Well, you can with a jammer. You can't with it. You wouldn't bother to do it with a a, uh, a clutch because you just rip the rope apart. But with a jammer, 17,000 pounds weight limit at uh, sort of, you know, 14, 15 mil ropes that I'm using. The main thing then is that we can pull on the rope with the actual um, strength of the rope itself. We can connect onto this uh, flying jammer, as it's called, a flying jammer with a, a piece of uh, a modification essentially to the hardware that allows it to have a soft shackle through it. Let's put it like that. Normally they're bolted to the deck. This time it's got a soft shackle passed through it. And then that soft shackle can be uh, pulled with a, another winch somewhere else on the on the boat. You can put the flying jammer onto the rope, which has become locked up in an override. You can then put something put either put it through a snatch block or wrap it around the back of the winch or something and pull on another winch and it will pull a bit of slack into that rope so you can start to undo the drum brake that you made on the winch by going and driving into an override now do you have one of those <laughs> okay <laughs> probably not because the jammer itself is a thousand pounds uh to, to purchase like 1500 us to purchase or, or certainly they were you know correct me if i'm wrong now but they're pretty expensive at that size and then all the modifications to it and everything else it's a very expensive piece of equipment that does one specific thing really really well so if we don't have that and you know i don't have it for the larger size ropes i've got i've only got it up to about 15 mil but um and i haven't got anything for any smaller than that it's just that one particular piece of equipment is very good for exactly the ropes that you use on a 60 foot boat and that's why it's there it's part of a race team's equipment to get out of this problem so if we don't have that available we're going to have to have something else and it's going to have to have the following characteristics it's going to have to um, be able to spread load over a large amount of area Otherwise, we're going to fall into the trap of having the uh, clutch on the line in the foregoing uh, previous kind of explanation there. So that wouldn't work. We can't just have like one thing that grips hold of it, like a pair of, you know, uh, I don't know, mole grips or something like that. It's not going to work. So you've got to spread it out. So we're not dumb. We know what a rolling hitch is. We can make a rolling hitch. OK, brilliant. Then we're going to have to pull on it and it's going to have to grip onto the rope and that's where you do get into a bit of a problem immediately because if you have a piece of line which is 
um, the same size as the one which is stuck in this overriding situation it won't grip onto it that rope is under a lot of pressure if you try to make a rolling hitch on it in a piece of loose rope in your hands it's never going to grip onto it you're going to have to shoot down by i was trying to work out what the ratio might be i use an, a 10 mil piece of rope on like 13 inch lines and it sort of holds maybe an 8 mil so, so yeah it's between 8 and 10 mil so what are you coming down there you're coming down by a bit over Half, no, a bit less than half. You're coming down by about 45%, something like that. Does that make sense? So if you have a 10 mil line, you're going to want a bit of 6 mil. If you have 6 mil ropes, is that even a thing? I don't know. You'd need 4 mil. But the point being, it has to be about one third smaller um, in diameter so that it can get some kind of purchase on the line that's under pressure. We're dealing with overrides where you've you know brought a jib tight. There's no other way of getting this undone other than obviously cutting it. The problem then being what, what happens to the sail when, when you cut it. So we're trying to get it out first. So we can do a rolling hitch. It's going to have to be smaller. So if it's made of the same material as the line that it's going on to, it's going to have a one third less operating uh, you know, window. And that means it's probably going to break before you actually get the, uh, the, the slack that you require to take off the override. So you're going to have to go up like a, a capacity of strength. So the simple answer here is that for most people who are working with like 10 mil lines on their boat, you need a piece of six mil um, sheathed Dyneema, which is available to put a rolling hitch into the line. You start the rolling hitch in front of yourself and you move away from the winch. And that's going to create the uh, rolling hitch that you need to spread the load around. And then you bring that back and attach it to some other rope on the boat that's connected to some other winch on the boat. That being you don't have to have like, you know, many, many feet of this thing to be able to reach all the way to another winch. You just need to have about two meters of it that's going to allow you to do this trick and get locked into one of your lines. You're going to then have to put a, um, a knot on the end of it, like a bowline or something. But the fact of the matter is that there's probably so much slack in the, uh, the equation between the strength of the Dyneema and what's required to pull on a normal double braid polyester rope that it, the fact that the bowline is the weakest part of the system is irrelevant. It's still going to be strong enough. So the, you'll then be able to pull on it with some other line. It'll create slack and you're able to get the override off. So how do... Um, overrides appear they appear because the um, incoming angle of the rope is above 15 degrees um, momentarily or what have you and it um, is exacerbated by the ropes being old or being made of particularly um, technical materials that increase friction um, once they start to grind in it gets to a point where for a professional solution to the problem you're talking thousands of uh, dollars to to kind of like quickly make something up it's going not that's not going to work out so a rolling hitch with a piece of line which is about 66 percent of the diameter of the line that's got the problem and then bring that to some kind of uh, hitch if you've got a spliced loop in there brilliant you can have this piece of line on deck i normally have this a two meter piece of line what i have on my boats because the boats are running um, sk95 dyneema is i have vectran rope so i have a piece of vectran rope which is about 8 mil, 9 mil, I can't really remember now, between 8 and 10 mil, but certainly on the thinner side, I would imagine by now, having put under a lot of strain, it's got a spliced in loop on the end of it and some soft shackles that go with it. And it is available for doing um, rolling hitches on piece of line that I can't get the flying hitch onto. Sometimes you just can't because the way things are laid out. So, um, or, or there's a worry that something's going to break and that the you'll lose the piece of equipment in the um, the flying uh, jammer so that uh, you know you don't have it or it hits somebody or whatever. So if you're going for a rolling hitch, 66% uh, of the diameter, stronger um, material, and uh, you should be able to put a rolling hitch in there and pull it pull it off. Now, 
if you can't, <laughs> what do you do then? If you don't happen to have this piece of rope with you, well, first thing you've got to do is, if say if it's a sheet, you're going to have to get the other sheet, quickly whip it around the front of the mast and bring it in through a winch and wrap it down onto something. Even if you end up wrapping it on top of the winch, which is already fully loaded with a load of other stuff and tie a single bit hitch there, right? At least it is secure and will deal with this ongoing problem next if you know you need to get off the rocks kind of situation because what you can always do then is put your rolling hitch onto the other line which isn't under as much pressure and you'll be able to pull in a little bit of um, slack and get everything worked out later on right but if you just have to happen it just has to happen like right now we just if we don't tack right now then we are going to crash into that boat at the start line which is normally when overrides like to turn up then you need to get the other sheet and get it down what I will often do is have a third sheet sitting at the mast with the, the mastman and he knows or the mastman is often the foredeck guy you know it's that kind of how it works out in racing but whoever's on the foredeck knows there's a piece of line and if they have to they, the other thing you can do is just have them quickly um, cow hitch your piece of two meter line with a, a, a spliced in loop at the end cow hitch that through the um, clue and if the sail's not under like absolute banging you know upwind pressure they can tie it off to some piece of deck hardware that is rated for that task and you've got to make that decision on your own boat in your own way for me a lot of things on the side deck are that strong because they're used for like bearing guys and all that kind of stuff right so you just quickly tie the sail off bingo and then cut the line excellent rerun the sheet no problem at all and then uh, pull in and go a little bit further than the other one was or if you can't do that cut the little piece of line or undo that clever slip knot that you remember to put into it whatever it is but hold the sail and then replace out the the line having cut it if it's something like a halyard where you've ground something up and then it's gone into override um the good news here is that it you know it, it's where you want it to be right and there shouldn't be any particular issue apart from maybe you need the winch or whatever it is or unfortunately in my situation or can happen in any kind of race boat where it's on a lock and you have to grind the the halyard up a bit so you can get the lock off to then drop it back down which could be like in a bit of an emergency um then you then you've got a problem Okay, and I <laughs> may God be with you. Um, who knows, right? Uh, what could you do in that situation? <sighs> okay, off the top of my head, um, if I knew what was coming next and I had the moments available, I keep my messenger line in a very, very um, uh, organized fashion on basically a giant frame that you'd use for jigging for crabs you know those kind of little wraps so you have that kind of thin line that's going to be a messenger line I normally have three times more than I need for the mast because I have some halyards that go up and down uh, you know quite a few times so three three to one halyards so it's three times the height of the mast it's on this giant frame which is literally like a foot by two foot kind of looks like a thing that you wrap the string around for jigging for crabs or whatever and uh, it has two holes in the in the middle of the the arms on the side and what you do is um, when you need to have it disappear out over the, you know, go up the mast with a line when it's attached to a line, you put two Phillips screwdrivers into the holes on the side and stand back a bit. And it just goes round and round and round and pays out the line really, really easily. And then when the line is coming down, you just wrap it round it like a kid, you know, doing like crabbing. It's super simple. Now it's big, but it's big and it is always available and the line's never in a knot or in a hank or anything else and it's very flat you can put it up against the hull and it's very easy to you know cut bits off and then put knots back into it and see what you've got and so i know that when i say the next bit i might put a best messenger line on it i say it with some like knowledge if i had a second to 
act before I cut the line, like on a halyard or something, bearing in mind that I'd be trying to reeve a line back through a hundred foot high mast, I would do two things. I would go to the mast immediately and get as high as I could and wrap a sail tie around the mast as tight as I possibly could with the idea that I might stop the final concussive smash of the mainsail as it comes down because the mainsails on these big boats are so heavy you know they're so fast and if you actually are going to swing the boat up into the wind and drop the mainsail by cutting the halyard on a boat where the mainsail weighs 350 400 pounds um you it better be a good turn it better not catch on the backstays as it comes down and it better not smash all the the balls of the recirculating balls in the uh the 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 mast sliders into a million pieces so i tie that line around and then at that point even if i have to cut the halyard immediately next um maybe i miss that damage the next thing is i would um go below grab that uh, the crabbing thing with the uh with the uh, messenger line on it and um immediately uh how would you do this i would rolling hitch it on to the halyard just before it goes into the port on the side of the mast i would then um put some uh rigging tape over it to try and smooth it out as much as i possibly could but i'd be pulling it that tight that hard that fast hopefully with something like a uh, my marlin spike or something on my you know off my leatherman to just pull that in as quick as i possibly could so it cinches down into a line that i know is under tension because the override situation and the weight of the mainsail and then um I would cut the line just forward of the jammer so that everybody and everything is out the way of this line as it goes whipping up the deck. And I would have uh, somebody holding on to that, um, that contraption with the, uh, with the messenger line on it and get them to try and, you know, try and control it with the caveat being just let go if it goes crazy. Because the good thing is that the line will just shoot up inside the mast and the mess of whatever you've created will just uh, snap the line and the halyard will continue on its uh, way out of the boat. So um, I guess that's all you could do because at the end of that, you'd still have a line wreathed over the top sheath for the main halyard and you wouldn't have to go up the mast and put a new halyard in, right? Which is basically impossible with these bigger masts where you have all sorts of um, protuberances inside the mast where the, 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 the spreader roots are, that kind of thing. You'd, you'd never get a line back in it at sea. You'd be rigging something on the outside of the mast. It'd be a mess. So if I was in that situation where I had to cut a line, safety first, no one's anywhere near it. No one's on the foredeck, anything like that. I'd be trying to cut it in such a manner that a very small amount of it is going to disappear out of sight because the pigtails... It, it, you don't want it to then get stuck in a block with a pigtail so don't cut it too far back so at the jammer or at the base of the mast but then it might whip you in the face no i think in front of the jammer is the way to go and then um yeah like see if you can get a messenger line on it <laughs> and stop it smashing all the way down to the ground what else can you say an override can end up with boats like smashing into each other i remember the uh the clipper race the start of the um the leg from south africa to Geraldton in in the 2010 edition um two boats had a massive impact there which heavily damaged the bow of one and had 25 feet of the side of the other one under like emergency repair for the boats to be able to continue on and meet up the rest of the fleet um that was caused i believe by a winch not being able to ease eased off quickly enough in time whether it was an override or not it certainly is a good example of the fact that not being able to ease a winch can be extraordinarily dangerous for the boat and everybody else so i hope that's helpful stan a bit of a rant a bit of a chit chat about it overrides one of those things that you just ugh, 
it happens. You're like, okay, so you know what? I, you know what I haven't said here is how do you avoid overrides? Well, don't do any of those things. Make sure the leads are really, really good, and um, keep your eye on your winch. That's the that's the trickiest thing, right? Because you have to look at the thing it is that you are winching. We're always told that and very good advice, but that's but don't then not look at the winch at all. That would also be ridiculous. That'd be equally ridiculous, right? So you're gonna have to like split your time. <laughs> it's like multitasking for men. Um, you got to look at both the thing that's going in motion because of what you're doing with the winch and the winch itself. Um, also, you know, bits of your own equipment uh, going into it, the loose bits of your life jacket, your gloves, all that kind of stuff. So. Um, overrides keep the line uh, within uh, 15 degrees above and below the uh, horizontal and the entry point the the original question said is it about too many um, too many turns being on the winch that will definitely cause it the winch is designed to have the vertical section of the drum filled with turns uh, when in operation so if the number of turns that you've put on it end up with not all of the turns being on the vertical face when it then starts to go round then you've got too many turns on it so that would indicate that your idea of when it's full when it doesn't have a load on it is not the same as the physics of the winch say is <laughs> loaded i just want to say it like that it's like it's not my idea of it it's just it doesn't then the machine's not working the way it's meant to do so if it is if the consideration is that it's absolute hor horizontal entry into the winch and uh, you've got a lot of turns on the winch and it looks like it's pushing line down the skirt, well, that's operator error. That's read the read the manual. Um, if it's anything else, like there's an indirect, uh, there's, there's no redirect on the, the jib sheet blocks. They're jumping up and down and transferring that into motion and then it's shaking overrides into it. But the, the winches that normally go into override are spinnaker winches, let's be honest. Like you do a big jibe. And uh, you're pulling that lazy sheet in fast, 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 fast. The block is shaking up and down. You know, that's one of the reasons you have the elastics on them to like to, to slow down and, and stabilize that movement. Otherwise, of course, it's going to translate into a whip like motion coming off the turning block and going to the winch, which uh, is going to cause an override. Right. So that's easy enough. You know, the other thing we could also say, I guess, is uh, well, there's loads to talk about this, isn't there? Um, is uh, how many turns are on the winch when you're doing overhand uh, tailing. Um, you want to have three turns on the winch when you're doing overhand t uh, tailing, probably two. If You can't pull like three, four turns through a winch, right? Because that's, again, not how the winch is meant to be worked. If you're like pulling in the lazy sheet and it's got four or five turns on it, the incoming line is not under tension because when you yank it in, the line continues moving for a couple, you know, a couple of fractions of a second after you stop pulling, at which point it's slack at the bottom, which then means that the bottom turns start to stagger and fall their way down the lower skirt. And then it goes into override when the line comes tight again, because it immediately pulls horizontal and pulls itself up on top of the, the wraps that have just subsided down the, the uh, skirt. So um, three is the magic number with friction and wraps and turns on a, on a winch. Um, Three is like the minimum you're going to need to be able to hold some kind of load. Um, you're going to have to put quite a lot of weight in if there's a lot of weight on the other side, but you'll have control. Two turns you won't. Two turns is useful for pulling stuff in real fast. Three turns it won't go into override, but it, you know, it's pretty close. It wraps itself backwards and forwards, but never locks up. Four turns it will go into override because you're pulling and the incoming rope jumps over the other turns when they fall down the skirt. So those things I would say are like operator error, that's fine. You should watch that video that I just put on YouTube. <laughs> the seamless, 
seamless entry into that. Talking of which, it's half an hour in here. Um, I've got this rare opportunity again to send questions to um, the chief operating officer of an insurance company. I think insurance is very uh, near and dear to many of us, uh, our hearts, our wallets, uh, our darkest thoughts in the middle of the night. Um, I, I would really like to see an insurance um, insurance broker or an insurance uh, underwriter recognize sailing perhaps from the angle that we see it at which is that if i smash it into this rock then i'm going to fix the boat because i'm stupid right i i did this thing or or i saved everyone by gently touching the boat up against this rock so you could all get ashore however you want to view it it's on you because that's kind of what seamanship and and boat handling is about what we're all very keen on also no doubt is that other people are protected the crew um, people in the boatyards uh, might come on and off the boat um, any legal situation that needs to be covered going through locks going under bridge systems or whatever it is that you have to have uh, insurance let's cover all of that but if i smash my boat up you know i'll do the work i'll fix it i'm not going to be coming running to the insurance company you can increase or decrease the dial on that as much as you want but that at the bottom of the dial what I would hate to be the situation is that people who are good people who are trying to do things right can't go sailing because the cost of the insurance is so prohibitive, which some people are experiencing. Depends where you sail. Um, but certainly if you've got any kind of machinations to go long distances, get ready to have interesting conversations with insurance companies. So this insurance company, to my reasoning, um, has everything to play for if they are able to give a product which is adequately priced. But they're saying like, hey, we're not going to give you back the entire cost of your keel because you drove it onto the rocks at 10 knots will give you back x percentage and that's like well that'll probably you know buy the yard time and i'll fix it up or whatever that is but something around there that there's some kind of like sense of fair insurance not where i'm carrying the fact that other people make really spurious claims for things that really were their responsibility to look after right so um, I want to have any ideas you've got on the kind of questions that you need to ask an insurance company to make sure they're legit. Because the one thing I don't want to do is be uh, offering up some kind of uh, uh, rare opportunity only to have it all turn to sludge in front of me because the, the company themselves are not uh, a legitimate source. And I think therein is a conversation about insurance and the nature of insurance on boats because it, it's a spine chilling it's a spine chilling idea that you might have to use it. Right. And it's spine chilling to have to to, uh, to 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 purchase it. I was reading something the other day and it was saying that um, the best way to look at some of the um, charges you have to pay is to divide them into two groups of fees and fines. A fee is something you willingly pay to get something that you understand and agree with in return. And a fine is something like maybe more emotionally you feel like you're being fined for this thing that you want to do like yeah you want to do that thing well you got to pay this and fines don't feel good and fee fees feel okay <laughs> there's enough f's in that to confuse everybody yeah so the, paying a fine of having to pay your insurance to go sailing sounds like a crappy deal if there's a way that it's a fee that you say hey i want to cover all this stuff with other folks and and you know, make sure everyone's good and your your life insurance is good and your body's covered and stuff like that. But like not that you lost your camera in the bilge water because that's your own bloody fault that the camera was able to get to the bilge water. Why is everyone else having to pay for you having the attitude to sailing? Right. So any ideas you've got, please stick them in an email. CSM the Mariner at gmail.com. 
and I'll include them uh, in that when I have that conversation. So um, what else we got? Oh, of course, over on the Mariners Library. Yeah, Mariners Library going well over there. Numbers getting bigger. It really makes me happy that because it uh, gives me so much joy to read those stories. Been crying my eyes out reading this uh, anthology, White Sails Shaking. It's worse than a normal sailing book. Because at least in a normal sailing book, you have to have you know, a bit of great drama, which we know does exist at sea. And then you have to have the other 100 days where nothing much happened. Um, but when it's an anthology, of course, they're just cherry picking all the really emotional, really dramatic parts from all these different books. And uh, if you go to sea and understand what it's about, like you kind of feel the spirit of the thing. Yeah, you're in tears. Like there's one bit where this um, it's actually um, William Nutting, who was the uh, editor of Rudder magazine back in the 20s and had a, a vessel called, called Typhoon, a brilliant book that he wrote called Track of the Typhoon. I've actually read it over on uh, patreon.com uh, forward slash the Mariner. And um, it's uh, it's a very, very good bo- book about them rushing to get a boat finished in Long Island Sound to then uh, speed across the Atlantic on this half put together boat to go and race um, in the Solent and then on the voyage back, they get into a situation where uh, one of the crew goes, well, actually two of the crew go into the sea, but one of them, Uffa Fox, you may know his name, he gets back on board on his own, but the other chap is away from the boat and it looks like he's about to drown. And our uh, narrator, Bill Nutting, um, wonderful prose, is describing the fact that at that moment in time, his mind doesn't like process things um consecutively and in the in the middle of the emergency he's immediately thrown back to um departing the dock in long island and having the young man's father tell him please to be careful and look out for him because he's the only child the only member of his family left after the uh, influenza uh the spanish flu killed everybody so um you know you can't read that and not and not be affected somewhat like you start there's a bit further on in that where he's describing um picking out a star and then pinning it between the weather shrouds and the mast and like just you know nutting down for the night and uh get your hat down and looking out of the cold ocean and picking your line and kind of blearily looking at the compass and obviously described in much better prose than I'm capable off the cuff but uh the point being you recognize these people are exactly the same as us they're having the exact same experiences and then when you realize that man, you know, who's saying that to him, please be careful, my son, he's the only family I've got left. It's like, jeepers, you know, I've got a two-year-old boy who I cannot begin to imagine. Well, I feel sorry for the the skipper that tries to take him out to sea. <laughs> it's like uh, if you've got a young girl, you've got to be sorry for the young lad that has to come and take her to the dance. Well, this is different. I feel sorry for the skipper that has to take my boy out to sea. He's better be bloody good and bloody safe as it's not happening. <laughs> Okay, so let's have a see. Next question is from Bojangles8837 via YouTube, um, talking about the sail training, how do sailboat winches work, the latest video I did. A bit of a wet reception on that one, my fault. Um, I put it out, and then about 12 hours after I put it out, and the numbers were looking pretty good, looked like it was getting some traction, I decided to publish my podcast on YouTube, which then put 92 um, pictureless uh, videos after the one I just spent all that time and effort on, right? We filmed it last summer. It's really nicely shot. And then the uh, YouTube algorithm in its infinite wisdom decided that when I publish my podcast with their format, it's going to put it out as say 92, 92 episodes, 92 videos with no moving pictures, just me talking, doing the podcast, which buried that video so far down in the stack. 
that it was never to see the light of uh, light of day again. So I shall keep trying to plug it a little bit. I think it's quite good. It's a very clear look at um, the winches on the big boat. Bit of fun learning about the coffee grinders and stuff as well on there. But um, Bojangles 8837, um, which rings a bell. I think maybe we might have sailed together. Let's have a find out. Um, well done, Chris. One issue I have with my swan is getting the right strong ergonomic body position over the various winches. One of the curses of flush decks and winch system. Keep them coming. Any thoughts on doing Newport to Bermuda this June? Okay, well, a few things there. Um, yes, it's difficult. Uh, you get down into those positions where you basically got like the front of your shins up against the combing and the winch feels too low. I'm thinking about smaller boats, you know, but even on bigger boats, you're having to like lean across really big cockpit seats to get to where the winch should be. Again, the best way of looking at it is like, how exactly should it be? And then what are we, where's the compromise here? What, why are we making the choices we make? The, the best position to be up alongside a winch like that, take, take it from somebody who went around the world on a, an open 60 solo with no coffee grinder, right? Only top loading winches. And the one at the mast, which did the halyards on the mast. So that's like a side loading uh, two speed winch. <laughs> it's always interesting to operate that sucker 173 turns between reefs uh, four reefs i can still remember and it's 10 years ago or more now um but the um the, the winches the winch action i had to put put in to make that kind of happen was as equally awkward as you can imagine that open 60 when you stood in the cockpit the deck was at knee height it wasn't very deep <laughs> it was there was no protection at all. You're in the Southern Ocean. It's just like being on the surface of Mars in a hurricane, right? It's just not a place you want to be. The um, thing I learned only is this. If you're compromised in your position, you're going to have to compromise how you grind the winch because it's not going to work the other way. I can remember taking a... The boat was called Imagine and we were going from... Oh, we went from Hong Kong to the Philippines and then I think Philippines back to Hong Kong on a different occasion. But it was... Uh, <clears throat> pardon me, it was an Oceanish uh, 54, if I remember correctly, uh, a Beneteau. And um, the, the side deck seats, or the cockpit seats rather, was really wide because the compromise you're looking for is being able to sit in the cockpit to a proper table and have a proper meal with adults and be able to lie on them and sunbathe. So they have to be X wide, like shoulder wide, um, and they have to be long enough to seat like what two three people something like that at a minimum well at three people I would say really if you if you're going for it if you've got a smaller boat then the compromise is well then you've not got much space so that's a problem right but on a big boat it's about what's in in front of the winch if the overall style is flush deck <laughs> uh, okay well we're going to lie down and operate winches then is what's going to happen so what are you getting for it when well, you're getting a swan which is pretty <laughs> pretty groovy right but um the thing is that uh, no the winches are highly compromised in their positioning so you've got to compromise what you put in and be aware of the the work that your body's doing um the the, the, the reality is, if I look at the statistics for this podcast, um, if you're listening to this, basically you are over 45 or 50. You're from a Western country, probably Canada, the US, the UK, um, you know, uh, through Northern Europe and uh, and down uh, in Australia and New Zealand. And um, what else can you say? Like, uh, the point is, you're not 21. And so what's going to happen is the likelihood of what you do during the week being sufficient to warm you up and educate your body 
to be ready to like grind on a top loading winch in, in an awkward compromised position, it, that equation's not going to work. So number one, take 200 milligrams of ibuprofen. I'm not in any way saying that you should take loads and loads of ibuprofen, but I will say this, I've sailed a lot with old men, right? <laughs> and I'm now one of them. And the point is that 200 milligrams taken before exercise can really reduce the amount of inflammation you feel afterwards. Also, trying to get in an ice bath or get cool in a controlled way, not just getting freezing on the side deck on a boat, but cooling your body down does reduce inflammation. So don't, you know, don't get like too warm and too hot. Take a little bit of ibuprofen beforehand. Ibuprofen can lead to, um, you know, stomach ulcers. So be extraordinarily careful in your overall usage. But 200 milligrams is less than, it's half of like a standard adult uh, tablet. It's, I don't think they really sell 200 milligram tablets anywhere. So the point is that a small amount reduces the inflammation and you're not going to use your body well but feel sore afterwards, which is crappy. And the next thing is body position so that you don't damage your body whilst you're doing this thing. So the body position that you're going to have to take in your situation is entirely up to you, but it wants to be as balanced as possible. And the muscles that you're going to use to do this, they're going to need to be warmed up a little bit. You're going to need to be aware of the fact that you might not have that much experience of balancing on your toes and your knees and you maybe haven't done enough miles or, or hundreds of hours to know exactly how the boat's going to lurch and pitch around underneath you and that you might discover that you're quite top heavy and go over the winch so as always when going down because often you're trying to the hardest ones to winch are things like jib sheets you know when the boat's really hooning up to wind getting down there getting yourself into a locked out kind of position where you can't fall any further forwards like mechanically you're up against the combing um, is good i wouldn't get out of the cockpit unless you're very very knowledgeable about what you're doing i would not be standing with my feet on the tow rail um, trying to do some kind of hero motion uh, down surfing on the side decks you want to be the hell out of there um, so you're in the cockpit in some kind of compromised position trying to keep low trying to be aware of the fact that your body will go wherever your head starts to move towards and then try and use the the muscles that you can you know and I would always say it's like the polar plod and I've used that um, phrase loads of times so um, so Walter Raleigh is a name that jumps into my head that is not true so Ranulf finds I beg your pardon um, brilliant uh, Arctic and Antarctic explorer. His um, autobiography, Living Dangerously, was uh, uh, read, uh, I read it in my middle teen years. A very, very instrumental book. Very, very good book. And um, saying what you will, uh, his uh, achievements speak for themselves, right? So he knows what he's doing. And when he was down in Antarctica, he was with a group and they were moving way too quick. I think, I can't remember the exact situation now. I think it was in his second book called something like Feathermen. And it was... Um, uh, they were moving too quick and he advised them to take his polar plod, which is just moving slow enough that you get the job done, whatever it takes to get the job done. Right. There's no point racing ahead. So bringing in a jib sheet um, with such uh, uh, energy that you wrench your back um, is less good than bringing it in slowly over a couple of minutes. So I would, <laughs> I would go with that. Right. So. Um, the other thing, if you're on your own, you can get the autopilot, those those hard grinds, as we say, often up to windward. So get the autopilot and feather up a little bit. So you're just pinching. So it is a little bit easier. Don't be scared of like noises the sails make unless, of course, they're brand new sails, in which case you should absolutely not do this and never shake the sail again. What on earth are you thinking of? But if like the rest of us, the sails have got a couple of season on them, let them shake. Like I've seen this before. It's not a big deal. 
Um, but yeah, that's that's kind of where I'm at with uh, with uh, winches. Um, the stupidest winch is definitely the uh, mast mounted winch. And just looking at the computer in front of me now, actually the the um, thumbnail for the YouTube video I've been talking about uh, is uh, is me at the winch mast on uh, on Spartan the Round the World boat. And it's literally like a, a, a big two speed winch on the side of a mast. You've seen it on all kinds of boats. And that's what I'm winding this in this massive uh, mainsail up on a two to one Halley at 120. No, I beg your pardon, 200 foot of uh, line to come in. And um, the ergonomics on that are just hideous, hideous. And in the end, what I had to do with it is um, realize I couldn't balance out the muscles by flicking on one side and flicking on the other side because one was inherently more stable than the other. I'm right side dominant, so one felt, you know, stronger. So I just basically always ground in the same position and ended up like a kind of fiddler crab <laughs> with great big right arm and a kind of little itty bitty left arm like a tight t-rex um because i'm just grinding this round and however you want to do it the hand that goes up over the top in that kind of weird weak method rather than the kind of preacher curl punching position of the lower arm the upper arm's not doing that much but i could get it to the point where i could only need to take like uh, maybe a minute of a rest at each reef and then you could get the four four reefs up um in you know in 10 15 minutes or something so um pretty horrible uh work if the winches are not set up right but you get great things with them i think what you've got bojangles is a, a beautiful swan and uh good luck to you with that that sounds awesome yep newport muda we're gonna be doing that we've got half a crew for the maxi and uh we're looking to see how we fill that out um we can take about 18 on that boat and uh, it's pretty pretty exciting probably not going to be running like huge spinnakers because even the crew members i've got coming on board now have no experience with this kind of boat and it's just not safe to be trying to push something to the limit but for the experience of going on the boat and competing in such a fantastic event i hope that it'll be a really good fit so yeah maybe we'll be reporting more about that as we get the boat together in the next couple of months as soon as we get out of this icy cold season we got going on here okay and the last question here then is from uh, let me have a see. Duh, 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 duh. Matt Edwards. Hello, Matt. It's about glo gloves. What gloves do we wear when we're on board the boat? In the winches video, we did talk about the fact that you have to be very cautious with gloves. When you're dealing with winches, it is easy to get the tip of the glove caught in there. And then if you're unable to release yourself from the glove, the glove will be the thing that pulls you into the winch, right? That's where we get into the horror-stricken area of degloving, which uh, we probably don't need to get into now. It's exactly as it sounds. Um, it's pretty awful. The skin on your fingers coming off because of the winch's action. So let's not get into that. Gloves can be a, a method of get, making that happen. What I've started to do in the last couple of years is wear like a two layer system. I've been through every kind of sailing gloves that possibly could be um, from seal skin units to Heli Hansen, Gull, Gill, Musto, Henry Lloyd, you name it. Um, for a long time, I was very settled in using the gloves that the uh, the fishermen use here out on the uh, Newfoundland uh, Grand Banks. Very, very cold, very, very close to the water and working in the water all the time. Those gloves are big, orange, like all-in-one kind of rubberized canvas units, or rather, you know, rubberized PVC. You know what I kind of mean, a rubberized material. Well, they're very, very good as gauntlets, which is why I always call them steering gauntlets. You put them on and you're not going to be doing anything too dexterous with them, like a knight's gauntlets. They will keep you dry. Um, I've also used um, kind of a, a trigger finger style mitt rather than being a full glove. So you've got the thumb and the first finger available. They give you an extra degree of, uh, of manipulation of whatever it is you're doing on deck. Certainly like coarser things that you need to 
press and operate. But then inside that, I have some of those quite thin, like Milwaukee or whatever, name your brand, little thin work gloves that are so popular now. It's a thin nylon sheath, and then it's kind of rubberized across the palm. They're the thinnest ones you can get. You know, I know there are some slightly heavier ones with um, kind of a, a thicker, almost thermalish kind of um, cotton uh, material to them, and then rubber palms. They're very, very good, and if you're out racing, they're great as an option instead of uh, normal sailing gloves. But what I'm talking about is putting them inside of a gauntlet, inside of another kind of glove. And uh, what I found then is that you can take off the gauntlet, which is great for most of the time you're on watch, and then you've got this dexterous uh, little glove on, which just stops the, the wind on your hands, some of the water being shed quite so quickly as it might be, but it's going to get wet, it's going to get um, you know moisture on it, but it just seems to slow down losing that edge of, uh, edge of uh, usefulness. When your hand starts to get numb and you can't use it anymore, it you know, can be crippling, can be dangerous. So pulling off the gauntlet and having just a bare hand suddenly that hand's getting cold very very quickly and when it goes back into a gauntlet that's made up into a glove with individual fingers there's not enough like heat in your veins and in your hands for it to heat up the surrounding airspace or indeed the surrounding water inside the individual finger unit and so your fingers just get cold that's always the problem with gloves the fingers individually get cold so mittens are always better in that way because the fingers are together and also the pocket where the fingers are is open to the airspace that the palm is creating and obviously the palm and the hand is a much bigger piece of meat to be keeping warm than the individual fingers so mittens will keep your hands um, a lot warmer gloves will have the also the added problem of if you're doing things where you have to grip properly grip for a long time like you're bailing water or if you're working up the mast and having to hold on to something you get into kind of like fatigue in your fingers because you're having to draw them together all the time to get into the normal kind of grip positions that you'd be expecting because you've got this padding between your fingers. So is that called adduction where they come back to the center line of the hand? There's adduction and abduction, isn't it? I don't know which one's which, but bringing the fingers back together as though you're scooping up water, that position is not possible because you've now got all the material of the gloves together but and yet you're trying to get it there and your hands go into a fatigue you know, if you've ever used a chainsaw for long periods of time, as I have started to get into doing a lot more recently, or done a lot of um, bicycle riding or something like that where you're having to hold the handlebars, you can get into like weird fatigues in your hands and even cramps because of the fact that your fingers can't come fully together. But you have a level of dexterity within the gloves that's useful for like skiing, snowboarding, things where you're undoing binders, putting helmets on, chin straps, all that kind of stuff. At, at sea on a boat, when you're holding onto the wheel or you're on deck for a long time, mittens is what you want some kind of mittens. I think that the trigger mittens are the best kind of ones. Um, I don't think anybody does them in a, a waterproof method. I was once approached about making a, a set of sailing gear that was thought out on very, very practical basis. Like, I think that'd be something I would do. Um, if you need to get that individual finger warmed up further, you can just drop him down and pop him up into the pocket where the other fingers are and it soon warms back up. And then with the system we're talking about, you can take the entire gauntlet off and then you've got that thin uh, rubberized glove inside that gives you full dexterity and a little bit of protection when you put it back in the gauntlet at the end of whatever job you're doing um, it there's not that much water on it because it's a, a, a synthetic fiber that it's gonna like you know soak out the glove certainly try and wring it out and have it this is not a, a full kind of like debriefing on my uh, invention here but uh, at the end of the watch the the combination is still warm and yes, everything needs drying out on the generator before the next watch starts or the engine or whatever you're using. But um, it, the gloves, the big heavy gloves, the fisherman's gloves aren't so wet inside that they're not going to dry out in one off watch. 
and the interiors dry out easily in one off watch. So rather than having an absolutely saturated like sealskin glove or Heli Hansen glove or something like that, um, this two layer system. And the good thing is that uh, the fisherman's gloves are literally like 10 bucks in, <laughs> I guess you can get them on Amazon or something. Here you can get them in the shops because people go and buy them for their jobs at sea. That's what people who are getting their hands cold, working with metal implements at sea in freezing conditions, that's what they're choosing. Because we need the extra dexterity what we're doing, I'm saying get one size bigger and put those uh, inserts in. So I hope there's something there that's useful. I would love to have the opportunity to design something proper to keep hands warm and dry at sea because it really is the bane of my existence um, along with losing my uh, <laughs> AirPod down inside my dry suit and then not seeing it for two days. But, um, you know, each to his own. So I hope there's something useful there. We're just getting into the top of the hour here. So just three questions done this time, but I'm always happy to answer more. I shall um, write to those people at, uh, on YouTube and say to them, hey, your answer's here at the Mariner podcast. If you haven't already, please go and uh, have a look at that video about winches. I think if you like this kind of content, that's going to be right up your street. It really help the video get some traction. And uh, yeah, wherever you are and whatever you're doing, I hope that you are safe and sound. And I look forward to speaking to you in the next one. Cheers.